0: Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales, and to our recent series where we are looking at the history of native breeds of livestock in the UK. This week we're once again sponsored by Harborough and grateful for that sponsorship. The home of the Galloway cattle breed is the area in South West Scotland, made up of the counties of Dumfries and Galloway and Wigtonshire, possibly part of Ayrshire and. Uh, known for some of the highest rainfall in uk if not uh if not in europe and our guest this week hails from that area just north of castle douglas and he's just in out the rain himself a top breeder uh peter hunter blair from the Nethercook. heard uh peter welcome to the podcast
1: thank you andy hello uh,
0: and peter i'm right in thinking the first Galloway Herd Book was gathered together by Reverend John Gillespie, but uh, sadly was destroyed by fire, is that right, in 1851.
1: Would that that'd be a loss? Yeah, it would be a, a sad loss. I think that the first Herd Book was actually, uh, it was put together by John Gillespie, but it was actually what they called the polled Herd Book, so, so therefore it you know, contained pedigrees of Angus's and Galloway's, but uh-huh. so they weren't separated at that time, but it was destroyed by fire in the... Highland Society Museum in, in Edinburgh in 1851, I believe.
0: Um, and and the next one, I think, came in in, uh, in 1862, and as you said, it was shared with the Aberdeen Angus as well. Or, or the origins of the Galloway really is a bit of a blurred line between themselves and the Angus, isn't it?
1: I'm I'm quite sure that they would just be black polled cattle, and some of them, I would imagine, would be hairier, and some of them would be smoother-skinned, and, and they were just read the kind that they wanted at that time and then they would, they would split up i mean i think the uh, you know the, the the pedigree side of it the the Galloway side of it was um, taken out of the the poll's head book by by mr Maxwell of you know and he he published the first volume or caused it to be published, which was in 1877. So I'm sure you know.
0: If we do, yeah. just step back to that original um, herd book, or well, the second herd book, should I say that we are privy to? And there were 153 Galloways in that uh, polled herd book, and ten years later there were 126 Galloways. So you could say the sort of pedigree side of it took a while to cement itself, while these animals were maybe adapting to that to that climate down there in the southwest.
1: Yes, yeah, I think that that's a fair comment. I mean, there was a, a third volume of the polled hair book, and it, it contained pedigrees of 187 Galloways, I think. Okay. And then when the when the first time when it was split, you know, the 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 Galloway section of it was well, I think it would have to be bought by Mr. Marshall Munches. At, at that time. The first Galloway hairbook book had 985 Galloways in it
0: and that was 18, yeah, on. 1877 as i think you said and uh published specifically for the breed and, and as we've seen with a lot of these earlier herd books in various other um, um breeds that they were a private affair somebody would take it upon themselves to to get out there and go amongst the cattle and just gather all this data down and we we're glad that they did to be fair and then of course they'd own that data themselves and as you said in this case that was a chap called alexander ramsey who who pulled the first pulled herd books together and then he sold the copyright on to uh to Maxwell for the the sum of £75, I believe, which uh, uh, doesn't sound too expensive, considering how much work he'd done, and I don't think any of these made a a great deal of money doing these early books, to be fair. But
1: I I suppose £75 would be...
0: But the breed goes back much further than that, doesn't it, Peter? 1811, I've got a rather romantic summary of the beasts, uh, and it describes them as beautiful, symmetry, fineness of bone, mellowness of skin, and softness of hair. And that's pretty accurate, isn't it? Not much has changed in those 200 years. Uh, uh,
1: yeah, I, I would say not not a great lot's changed in that description anyway, no. Uh, no.
0: And another description described them as spirited, and I don't think we could argue with that one either. They didn't get the, the nickname of Gallopaways for nothing, Peter.
1: Well, there's possibly a, a bit unfair. I mean, they do seem to have a reputation, out with the breed of, of being spirited, as you, if you like to call it that. But I would, I would describe it more as having character than you know. And and you know I've worked with them all my life. And generally speaking, they're they're fine to work with. Those are to work with. Riding, right? you work with them in a in a quiet manner, which you know, I'm sure that's the same for for all breeds. Look to, to a large extent, if you work with them quietly, they tend to be quiet with you. But I think perhaps that the galleries being out in a hill situation, not seeing people, would. Possibly lead to that sort of spirited description.
0: I totally agree with you. You're right, and I'm pulling your leg. And of course, the same with the Highlands when they are right on the hill and not being seen for a while at a time. Then, of course, it's not quite the same as when they've been there in, in the fold yard and uh, and been fed and, and seen people every day. Um, no. But we moved back even earlier than than that, and it was something that that i I read somewhere that thirty thousand head of um galloways were shipped down to east anglia um so it'll be pre that date and uh, and walking the four hundred miles to get there that's some trek down the m one there was uh, any idea what what what's going on there four hundred miles yeah
1: well i mean they were they were certainly they were well sought after by finishers in east anglia and you know and it, uh, apparently it, I've heard it said that the you know the finishers would pay two pound a head more for galleries than they were for fishing cattle of other breeds but i i discovered that an agricultural historian at the time of William Hayton wrote of the galloways at the end of the eighteenth century no cattle feed better or yield beef that is more relished at the table so and I would like to think that's maybe the same today you know but. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would be be a massive trek, wouldn't it? And we've even heard anecdotal stories of them. You know, if they they went late and got sore feet, they would uh, shod them with metal plates, (laughs) which... um, it might not have been that easy for a while, but I suppose it must have been pretty lame before they could do that. In
0: fairness, I suppose so. I suppose if we some of our uh, American listeners on here would think walking four hundred miles was just a jaunt down the, down the end of the garden compared to to this, but site. But, but that's pretty much the length of a or a good part of the length of the country here anyway. And it would have been uh, it would have been some sight to see those animals going by, and uh, it would take them a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's- I mean, the the one thing I, I dare say that traffic wouldn't be an
0: issue no. in those days, no. as it is now. No, that's true. They might <laughs> they might have met the Durham Ox walking the other direction when he was on his way to the Royal Show that we heard about. Not the Durham Ox. I think it was a Hereford bull that was walking 80 miles from Herefordshire to Oxfordshire to go to the to the Royal Show. But they may have crossed over, meeting him on the traffic lights somewhere.
1: <laughs> right, right. I think I read somewhere they they, they used to reckon they would do a hundred miles in a week. Whether that's right or not, I don't know. But well, you know, it, it must have been a, a major exercise, anyway. Sure,
0: sure. And, and uh, we just um, stepping on a little bit, at some stage the belted Galloway would uh, appear, I suppose, and break away into a separate society. And uh, I know you don't breed belters yourself, but what, what do you know about them? And they're quite a showpiece as a breed, aren't they? But is there any real difference between them other than the colour? Um,
1: well, of- I, I don't think there's a, a huge lot of difference between, between the belties and the, and the black ones. Um... No, just the colour. I, I assume the same as, as as what you said, that they, they would just be, some would come, come out that way and they would be just, somebody would breed a, a, a bull with a lot of white on them to a cow with a lot of white on and, them and eventually establish it as a breed. And, uh, and, I mean, at the, end, at the end of the day, all, all cattle would originate from the same stock if you go far enough back, so there's bound to be things that would come out, sure. you know, through time, so...
0: Sure, how dominant a gene is that white band if you if you put a put a belty back onto a, a black um Galloway you how often is that white band going to appear?
1: I couldn't give you a straight answer to that, but I think it's fairly it is fairly strong. It is fairly strong. I mean because you hear people using um historically I've heard of people using belty bulls on dairy cows because then they know that the calves is off the belty bull when it's born because it, it has a, a white belt on it, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, certainly, I know, I remember one of, uh, I may remain nameless, but one of the fat stock enthusiasts uh, coming to me one day and saying, do you think if I bought a Belty, uh, belty, I'd manage to get some fat stock cars with a big belt round the middle of because they'd look pretty striking in the ring, but I think it depends what you put them to, to be perfectly honest. And, right yeah. yeah and and of course there's another variant as well which is the dunn galloway and that one did stay with the breed society i think the belties went on their own society am i right in saying and uh, my apologies to the belty breeders we probably won't get a uh, chance to cover them in uh, in any detail on this episode but hopefully we'll get back to them uh, one day but um the dunn galloway course, stayed in with the breed yeah absolutely yeah
1: i mean the the the, the dunn's Used to be a lot more common. You know, I, I can remember you know a lot of dun about it. And it's strange that, funnily enough, that when I came here to then I looked to start with it was a solely dun head, silver duns. Yeah. The duns are absolutely, totally acceptable colour, uh, uh, and registered with the black ones, and you can interbreed them if you like. And then you get very often get a chocolate coloured dun. We, yeah, a chocolate coloured uh, or a silver dun?
0: I was going to ask that, that if you did put the silver done on, on a uh, on a black uh, um, cow, or the other way around for that matter, which is the more dominant colour? Is would most of them come come out black?
1: No, actu- actually, the done gene is the dominant gene, and, and the black is is more recessive. If you like. Okay. In, in other words, if I mean, I know from experience, having having done it, if if you manage to get a black cow and a black bull that both have a done parent. You will never ever get get a, a done calf from mating that cow and bull because if the done gene was there, it would be showing. Right. So, in other words, so, in other words, it is a dominant gene.
0: Mm, it's interesting you say that. I mean, we I know looking more recently at the, the blue texels that have come in there and the sort of obviously a black kind of breed, and you put a blue texel on a white texel, and 95% of them will come out come out white, I think. Anyway, we're digressing white, on, yeah, uh, a little bit there, going back to the history of the breed. And you uh,
1: can also talk about colours, you can also get. Red Galloways by mating two black ones. I mean, there is a, a recessive gene for reds that in the anguses. OK. And so it does happen, and they're perfectly acceptable within the herd book as well.
0: Do we see many of those about these days?
1: Not very many. I mean, there are sort of strains of them, if, if you like. There are herds which are sort of noted for, for having the red gene in them. I mean, we we'd had... I remember at, at Merbrac where my father was, I mean, we did have
0: a bull that threw the odd red calf, So so it it does happen. Okay, certainly there's a red gene in the Angus as well, isn't there? Which uh, I got told off a bit for not mentioning it during our last couple of podcasts. Anyway, going going back to the history of the breed, a breed show Mm -hmm. was held in Lockerbie in 1851, and then the first sale of Galloway Bulls in Castle Douglas in 1855, where it's pretty much stayed ever since. I don't think Wallace Mark took it over until... uh, 1945 but in that first sale 50 bulls were sold with averages around uh, 20 pounds and the duke of buccluse bull queensbury made a record price uh, of 70 pound on the day in 1877 he was uh queensbury was quite an influential bull amongst the breed i believe peter
1: i certainly know the name queensbury and and yes i i believe he was
0: and A family we've heard of quite a lot in the last few episodes of this podcast. Uh, Thomas Bigger from Chapleton won first prize in Smithfield and the Highland Show with a heifer and would frequently be at the top end of the breed for a century and more. And, uh, of course, his son James and then his son James and then his son Donald and now James again. Uh, Incredible family, the, the Biggers. Peter, I'm sure you've had many dealings with them yourself.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean famed family in, in, in the beef castle world altogether and, and famed in the gallows at one time. I remember when we first started going from duns to blacks, one of the very first black bulls we ever sold at Castle Douglas actually was bought by the late Jim Bigger at the February sale in, in 2000. And um, quite a, a funny story attached to that was I can remember being, I was very proud to sell a bull to Jim Bigger to be honest. And an amusing story about it after the sale was, I went to thank Jim Bigger very much for buying the bull. And, and he, he expressed the wish. He said he'd like to come and see his mother. And I said, well, you're a bit late now. You bought the bull, you know. And was, she replied, yes, I bought the bull, but I haven't put him to cows yet. <laughs> and that put me in my place very quickly yeah. and firmly. But you know, <laughs> incidentally, he did put, put him to cows. but <laughs> but, um, but actually, sadly, he was, him and his, First crop of cows were killed the following year in the foot and mouth cold, which was that's. Like that
0: we'll come on to that that sad event in, in a yeah. in a short while, as we've discussed in a couple of other podcasts recently. The breed would cross the Solway as well, of course, into to Cumberland, as it was known then, Cumbria. Um, and I suppose that's quite similar country down there, especially when you get into the west. There's lots of rain and, and down there. Why, why do this breed like so much rain, Peter? What, what's a, what's a, why do they like the rain?
1: <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure that they really like the rain, but they're certainly. I would say they're possibly better suited to cope with the rain than, than a lot of other breeds. It's unfortunate we have so much rain.
0: You mentioned the feet earlier on, and I guess there must be something in that as well because you know, animals don't like rain. Certainly, that you know, the feet get get badly. They must be hardy of the feet because of being in the, evolving in that wet climate, are they?
1: Yes, they are. I mean, they're, they're pretty good of the feet, generally speaking. Yeah. Interesting. When you talked about them going across the sawway, uh, it's actually in Cumberland At one time, they were they were very often used as a house cow for milk, and that's within living memory. I mean, I've had some of the old Cumbrian Gallery be just talking about they can remember when used to milk the galloway cow for the, the house milk, which is quite a, an interesting story. C-
0: certainly, they don't come over as a dual-purpose breed, but certainly they are they are a milky breed with their calves, and that is interesting to to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Moving on, then a list of breeders who contributed to the herd book by the turn of the century, as well as the biggest, of course, would be the the Duke of Buclew, who would possibly own half of Galloway and, and the Borders, I think, by, by then. And, uh, and yeah, that,
1: uh, the, the
0: farm would be lambrig would that be right? Where, where's that? Thornhill somewhere,
1: uh, is it? Yes, it's at Thornhill, Dumlandrig Castle at Thornhill, and, and that would be the whole farm. Yeah, Yes, certainly the Duke, the Duke of Buclew, in all my lifetime, the, the present Duke, is president of the society and his father before him. And I, I really don't know how many generations that goes back for, but it's, it's just always been the president of the Gallo Castle Society. There's
0: certainly been a succession of Dukes involved uh, involved in the breed, yeah. look, looking at the history books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and along with uh, those uh, two we'd have uh, other breeders, James Cunningham at uh, Tarbrech, and I've got to pr- pronounce these properly, you'll help me.
1: Tarbrech, uh, Tarbrech. Tarbrech, yeah.
0: thank you. And James, <laughs> yeah. James Graham at Parseltown, Sir Robert Jardine at Castle Milk. William McTurk at Barley's and uh, W and J Shannon at Belleg, so some well recognised prefixes back in, in in back in the day. That one or two, of course, are still are still with the brief...
1: Yes, yeah, some of them are still have galleries. But in particular, Berle, I mean, Berle is is next door to here, and Robert McTurk is is the is, uh, is the same same roughly the same age as me, and you know he's my neighbour, so he's now junior vice chairman of the society, so continuing. The, the tradition of the McTucks at Believe with the Galloway. It's so one of the oldest herds in the, the herd book, I think. I think we right
0: might right we, we might just get on to mentioning those when we do mention some of the more uh, uh, modern herds. And one other name that came in there was Belleg. Would that be uh, where Geordie McElraith was across in is that Would that be the same Baleigh? Um I'm,
1: I'm not entirely sure, but I think so. It's the only Belleg that I know of.
0: Another one listed is a Thomas McCrae of Guelph in Ontario and he appears to have bought some from an export that was shipped over right back into 1853 and became a quite a prominent breeder over there and peter i remember chatting to you in the summer and you've been in canada a few times what can you tell me about those early exports into canada The cattle would be well suited to the to western canada wouldn't they
1: yes i, w- I would say they'd be very well suited to western canada very well suited to the sort of prairie situation if you like you know quite easy care is its modern phraseology um yeah, and they would do well out there. And, yeah.
0: they, and they'd stand the cold a little bit further north as well, the climate, wouldn't they? Exactly. Uh,
1: absolutely, yes.
0: But you, yeah. you've been there. We'll go, maybe go on to some of the imports that came back in. But you have been over there and seen there's quite, quite, a, quite a big support for, for Galloway's there, aren't there, at the shows anyway?
1: Yes, as you know, I mean, there would be a massive export demand to Canada at one time, and then there was a fairly big import demand back into this country yeah. from Canada yeah. at one time. Yeah. So.
0: As as with a few other breeds. And I read somewhere there was a bit of a spat between the Angus and Galloway breeders going back around about that time, and McRae was involved in the middle of it. And again, I suppose the slightly blurred lines between the two breeds they would come into play. Any idea about that one? I believe that that's
1: true. But um, there was somebody, a, a, an eminent Canadian cattle breeder at the time, sort of stopped it all by saying look this is this is nonsense i mean there's plenty of room in canada for both breeds well, just get on with it so i think that's how it was resolved basically
0: and we talk talk about things being resolved i read a lovely uh, uh, excerpt quite a bit later that the issue of scurs reared its head in in uh, of course to our unassumed breeders, scurs being uh, marks where horns had, had or could be growing and Uh, that sort of uh, questioning I suppose the exact origin of the breed and then a four-hour discussion ensued headed by James Bigger which dismissed any horned animals from registration and I've sat on meetings with uh, with Donald Bigger and and I think he's been mentioned again on another podcast I've no doubt that James would have uh, been a man of great influence and the right guy to have on side in in such matters and that was the door closed pretty much in a winner.
1: Yes, same as yourself. I've sat in meetings where Donald Bigger was the chair and a very good chairman. and I presume his predecessors were, were equally good. Um, you're right. At that time, there was a lot of discussion about scars and possibly even horns. But and it was that time they tightened up in the regulations. And, and interestingly enough, that was the first time, as a result of that debate, the society started to do transfer certificates for, for private sales. Well, it became mandatory. You know, to aid in the policing of this. Okay. So, so they could say, Well, you can't you could can do that because that, that beast got scars or whatever. So sure. and they still still obviously issued transfer certificates nowadays in the
0: same nowadays. Basis. Nowadays of course we've got DNA and various other things to regulate that and it does tighten uh, it up. Exactly. Although yeah. I'm sure yeah. I'm sure the matter of scale still raised its head in that breed as it has as it does in the Angus breed from time to time. But we like to be a bit controversial on this programme but uh, I'll, I'll skirt over that one.
1: Um I dare say it's 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 very like the how the belt is originated. I mean as I say they all came back I mean they were bound to be horned cattle away back among them and, and no reason why the, the genes can't lie dormant, so to speak, then at some stage. But yeah. Sure.
0: yeah, for for a lot of generations, you're right. And yeah. uh, the society was having been formed in 1877. Doctor Gillespie handed over the reins as secretary in 1912 to another well-known family, Francis Gourlay from uh, Moniave, and uh, with his wife standing in whilst he was away at war interestingly then the registrations there were over a thousand calves in 1915 so the breed was was firing well and then gorely resigned in 1920 and james Carlyle took over who was a top breeder himself i think and then in 1941, another goalie took over, uh, and this time, uh, Alan had spent some time in Calcutta, and he got paid for the job at £400 a year, and uh, they get around, these, these guys, don't they? Neil Goalie was Chief Cattle Steward when I was uh, his deputy at Smithfield in 2004, and a, an able family, been in the breed a long time, uh, Peter?
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah, uh, I mean, the name name's synonymous with with, with Gallery Cattle, and they're still, uh, certainly, George Gourlay, Craig Moy, is still a, a noted Galloway breed, a noted herd of Galloway's Craig Moy at Ive. It's certainly a, a, a very famous name within the breed. Right?
0: Sure. And, and looking at the commercial side of it a little bit, one of the most popular. Breed was the Galloway crossed Short Horn, known of course as the Blue Gray, and this would become a very fashionable suckler cow in later years throughout Scotland, possibly throughout uh, England, or certainly north England. It possibly still is, to be fair. And uh, I guess that the demand for, for for the these cows to to cross would um, would take a lot of Galloway heifers out of the herd book and into the crossing side of it, Peter.
1: Yes, I I think you're probably right. Although a lot of the, the Blue Gray breeders would buy. Pedigree galleries. Having said that, but I dare say a lot of them would be gallery breeders themselves, and the ones who were going to put to the white short horn bull, they wouldn't register, so it wouldn't take off. This it. yes, is still a very popular cross. A fair popular up on Suckler cow. There's you know, quite a few other crosses are popular now too, with other breeds coming in. I think the Soleil are possibly one of the leading ones, Soleil cross galleries, and Semington cross galleries, Limousin cross galleries. Mm-hmm. But um I just maybe take you to task slightly on the the use of the word commercial. I mean I know it's commonly used to sort of to where well, you're talking about across from a from a pedigree animal. But I, I don't I don't like that actually because I mean I think about our gallows as being commercial. I think it's wrong to use the word commercial
0: in that, in that case. I like to think of the pure red ones as being commercial as well, I see. in the true sense of the word. Of course, I stand corrected. A lot of these uh, pure cows would be run uh, on on a, on a commercial, uh, um, functional beef basis, wouldn't they? And you mentioned the white short on ball across the the Black Galloway to produce the uh, the blue grey. Would most of those come back uh, polled, Peter?
1: Generally speaking, they are polled. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I I don't know. I've never I've never bred blue greys, but I you know I mean we. We advertise that them as as pulling the first cross or anything, you
0: know. Okay.
1: They, they they do. You know. uh,
0: and it would be a pure Galloway that won Smithfield carcass competition in 1924 from Alfred Palmer in Berkshire, who repeated the feat a few times, and the breed certainly was uh, developing as as a, as a renowned carcass animal, as you mentioned earlier on, and I. Suggests that would be challenged a little bit more when the Angus just literally muscled in on the act. But they certainly had, a, as you said, a, a reputation for a good carcass.
1: Yes, uh, very much so. And, and the is perhaps did come to the fore a bit. But I think i personally like to think that the the Galloway's always been able to hold its own against the Angus on the hook. I dare say, and Angus Breeders
0: might might not agree with it, but but there you go. Each to their own, and I had an Angus Breeder on it recently who was uh, saying that he really liked the Galloway himself. So we had to... In fact, I nearly invited him onto this podcast. <laughs> and by the early 30s, there were 200 bulls at uh, Castle Douglas and a top price of of 155 guineas although still nowhere near the record that had been paid of 315 guineas um uh, in, in 1920 but the the world export trade was starting to demand uk genetics and the famed walter bigger would purchase half a dozen bulls bound for saskatchewan in uh, in 1932 in canada uh, to go on a test and i'm not sure if you know but i'm not quite sure if the results were published and uh, and Says that they were up against a number of other breeds. So I don't know what they'd be testing them for out in Canada. Would that be weight performance or maybe pitching them against the other breeds? Yeah,
1: I think that there were performance recorded at some of these test stations in Canada, and I think they would compare favourably when when you take feed a, intake into account. And our figures published—I mean, I certainly don't have them in my head—but you know, they, they did. You know, from reading old Galloway journals. You know, they did they did perform pretty well on, other breeds, on, those, on those trials. So.
0: Okay. And it was uh, the late 1940s by the, the time the demand came again, this time from USA, South Africa, New Zealand, Argentina, Sweden, just about everywhere really. Everybody wanted a piece of this and the prices started to rise. New breed record of 500 guineas in 1946 and then 580 guineas in 1948 for Grange commander from the Biggers and by the end of the decade, they were taking whole shipments abroad, weren't they? There was, a, there was a, quite, a, quite a, quite a demand for them in the forties, just post-war.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I don't think really in fairness that the Gallows had the sort of exclusivity for in this. I think that was a, it was possibly generally, as you had said before, they were looking for British genetics, and it was. Post-war boom as well, wasn't it really? I, I suppose.
0: So. Of course, yeah. That's yes,
1: there was certainly a lot at expo- mm. that time.
0: Yeah. Certainly, yeah, a lot of short ones going a similar time as well, and and then a, a promotional drive in the UK saw the biggers again involved when the society bought a number of bulls at Castle Douglas and then resold them at Oban and uh, Shrewsbury for some reason for a loss as well. I'm not quite sure what that was about. I guess they're trying to get the get the breed noticed yeah. further around the country. Uh,
1: Hope that the promotion was ultimately worth their while, if, if even if it wasn't a loss uh-huh. to start with. You know, uh, uh, I don't know a lot about it.
0: Uh, and the the 1950s would become the uh, the glory years, though, wouldn't it? The 75 entries in the uh, the Highland Show and winning the Duke of Norfolk Cup at Smithfield, of course, which they became uh, regular achievers at. And incidentally, in one particular year, anyway, there was the Duke of Norfolk team in 1951 mm-hmm. that actually included a beast for, called usher who was uh, shown by none other than the duke of norfolk himself which i think's a bit uh, a bit harsh competing for your own cup have you ever won your own hunter bear cup peter
1: um well f- yes once actually but the, the hunter cup is it's, it's a it's a relatively young trophy really and it was it was only first awarded in, in 2006 you know it was presented by a family in memory of my father and and the winner of the champion show, mm-hmm. uh, the national, I should say, and, um, and that hasn't actually been held for several years now, so it's only, it's only really a couple that's probably been competed for six, seven times altogether. Okay. But yes, I won it in 2011 with a, a jointly owned bull, Cuck Steed, bread Bull, jointly owned with Black Craig and Holy Lee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're right, going back to what you're saying about the 50s and 60s, would could definitely be described as the glory years. I mean, uh, uh, 1964 was arguably the pinnacle of this. I mean, as far as Smithfield was concerned, anyway, the Biggers won the Supreme Champion at Smithfield, Willie Allen won the Live Dead competition, and Andrus Estate had the Reserve Supreme Carcass, and the Galleries won the Norfolk Trophy. So that would be a pretty... Clean sweep, more or less, pretty, at Smithfield that year. Pretty
0: clean sweep. We'll have a look at some of their other yeah. Smithfield achievements in a second. And uh, by 1955, uh, Tom McTurk, we mentioned earlier on, sold uh, Jake of Gateside for 2,700, a record that stood for a while to uh, Arthur Duncan. And uh, yeah. heifers came into demand then averaging over £100 for 80 heifers, but a lot of these would be, would be going for... for crossing wouldn't it so there'd be demand coming from all sides I suppose uh, I mentioned the goal is earlier on they set a new female record in 1958 with the uh, fortune of Craig Moy at 1300 and in fact females from Craig Moy were in demand notching up breed championships across the board and I should possibly mention uh, uh, Bert McMillan and his father there were stockmen at, uh, at Craig Moy and, uh, and top boys weren't they oh absolutely I,
1: mean, I remember about very well but I don't really remember his father but, I mean, Bert was certainly, when I was starting out, he was somebody I very much looked up to as a top stock member. Mm-hmm. A very nice, you know, very keen to pass on knowledge to a youngster starting out, if you like, and, and I had a great lot of respect for Bert. And, yeah. and it just interestingly enough, his family connection to Arthur Duncan, he was my great uncle, he was my grandmother's brother. Okay. Which is great. And he, I think he was. He was actually chairman of the society for longer than anybody else in in history. He was chairman of the society for 30 years or something. Okay.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And at the shows by the early 60s, Galloways were winning their share of interbreeds as well, particularly the Highland. And uh, James Bigger was starting to dominate the shows, winning the Highland, the Royal, and the Smithfield Breed Championship in the same year in 1960. And the name of... Muriel Johnson will be familiar to many, she uh, she made her debut by winning the Scottish Fat Stock Show with a pure steer, uh, the first time since 1934, and the steer had been gifted from her father, Captain Craig, who had uh, bought it from Castle Milk, and Muriel is another one of, great, of the breed's great characters, isn't she, uh, Peter, and she went on to judge in the US and various parts of the world, and she's one of the first, a few ladies to judge Smithfield as well, as so some character.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A, a real character within the breeder, um, just somebody that would be known worldwide in beef cattle so I call it. And she's always very interested in everybody, and always, you know, when you meet her, she always asks how everybody in the family is and what so and so doing. And you know, I mean, just very nice person, but but never got big-headed with her, her fame, if you like. You know, no. a, a, a extremely nice person, a very able
0: person. You know. And of course, um, it got uh, did very well. Of course, with Courtill, with 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 the daughter, with the Texel sheep as well. And that's that's. Uh, yes, I, yeah. I knew her through that uh, that angle as well in my Texel days. Yeah. And, and a slightly later, we got another lady, Marion Doan, of course, who was uh, another lady in the, what I say, a male world who uh, who held her own. And she always brought some great beasts uh, down to Smithfield, and was so enthusiastic, wasn't she? Yeah,
1: very keen keen on the job Marion was. Yeah, yeah.
0: And. Uh, I think you mentioned it earlier on, and in 1964 it was James Bigger who eventually won the Supreme at Smithfield with a senior steer called Sovereign when judged by Frank Young, and then there was succession of pure breeds around about that time, the Hereford, the Angus, and the Shorthorn, all sort of pure animals, all won in subsequent years at the show until the reign of perhaps uh, the Lena, Shirley Cross maybe took hold going, moving to the end of the 60s, but a lot of those later Charolais winners, of course, would be out of Galloway cows, wouldn't it? Like some of those that uh, from Sandy Beaton at Colonel Ogden, he have never heard of, uh, of yeah. Galloway cows, but a bit of Charolais on them, and again, another great cross, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yes, a great cross. I those were I think Colonel Ogden's cows were, possibly not all his Galloway cows, but I think most of those Galloway cows were actually done Galloways. Yeah. But I think this goes this goes back to the spirited or character side of the breed. I mean, I think the the, the Galloway would be putting the Know, that bit extra onto a show beast with a head, the flashy head, flashy lugs, and the character really, and you're know, putting something onto that to sort of the big doer headed Charlie, if you like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe that's a bit
0: controversial, but <laughs> no, yeah, you're quite right. They certainly did add a lot of sweetness to to the to the show, cattle And because back in my early days, I suppose in, in in the Smithfield days, it was all about that character and sweetness. Well, as much about that as it was about uh, about the carcass. Things have changed these days. Yeah, so, I mean uh, we
1: all know you fine having confirmation, correctness, everything else, but the, just that something extra, that spark, you know, mm-hmm. just, uh, above the rest with that
0: sort of thing. M- move into a, a, another herd, the Finleys of uh, Black Craig would feature by the mid-60s and probably one of the, the top herds ever since, Peter. I think Hugh Finley would be John's father and, and um, I'm right in thinking they hold the current breed record of, of females anyway, don't they?
1: Yeah, that's all correct. Hugh was John's father and, and yes, they hold the female record which was set this year at 12,500. Um, they, they, a lot of Galloway cows now, I think they've probably over 100 cows, but I think when when Hugh started, I, I know John's told me in the past that they just had 12 cows and they, they won several championships at Casa Duggles, undeserved championships they did very well just for those 12 cows and they obviously had a A good nucleus had to start with, Mm. and and done very well, and still
0: one of the top readers in the country. Another one we should mention, of course, is uh, Willie Allen, um, who would uh, rise in that era, and he won the Highland in 1969 with Moss Rose of Glenturk, as well as winning the, the breed champion at London as well, and I seem to remember he was involved down in Smithfield, and certainly into the... The, the late 70s, early 80s, uh, supplying Galloway beef to a lot of the hotels during Smithfield Week, and uh, did some great promotional work, didn't
1: he? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, I think that it, the, at Smithfield Week they took a bullock into the foyer of one of the big hotels that were serving Galloway beef as a proportional exercise. You know, they had the carpet all covered with plastic, etc. And, and I've seen photographs of it, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yes, Willie Allen was definitely a, a force to be, to be reckoned with. It is. Stockman, the late Davy Adams, as well, who was, in my opinion, really one of the top men in the breed of bringing out cattle, I mean he was definitely up there with, the like, Sir Dave Smith, in my opinion. You know, he was a great character as well. Yeah. a lot of these top stockmen tended to be great characters.
0: Sure, sure. And I mentioned uh, Frank Young. Plasco Herd would uh, have a big influence in the, in the 70s, and Plasco Norseman was a bull that, that, that stood out. I think as a, as a great breeder.
1: Yeah, Pasco norson was, was the record price move for a long time. I think it was 61 or 63. He was sold for 13,500 to Tom McTuck. Um, obviously, I can't remember. I would be either, either just born that year or two years old, depending which year it was. But I mean, I was a good beater. I think Frank Young bought a half share of him back, not straight away, but a couple of years later, and bred very well at Pasco as well as at Gateside for
0: Tom McTuck. Uh, and of course yourself, um, uh, Peter. Your family go back in the Galloway uh, breed quite a while there. And uh, uh, would it be Frank Hunter Blair? Would be your father? Is that right?
1: Yes, yes. Frank Hunter Blair was my father. Yeah, and he would he would start his head. When well, they bought my bracket Cushfern in 1955, and he would he would buy Galloway heifers about that time. But I came here to Nairn in 1981. Um, just to work for the late Ian and Ann Jennings, who had re- or retired or semi-retired from the shield at New Galloway, where they had a, a done Galloway head, which they brought with them, or some of it with them, from New Galloway. Uh, that would go back to the 1920s or 30s, I think. I'm not quite sure. But, I mean, I worked for them, and, and they had no children, and, and they very kindly left me the farm. You know, they were the family friends of my father's and we referred to them as aunt and uncle although there were no actual relation but, you know, in an old fashioned kind of way, you know, sort of way it was done in those days um, so and then as I think I've maybe already said we changed over from, from Duns to Blackman's in the, the mid 90s um, by that time Ian Jennings had passed away but Ann Jennings was still very much alive and very very keen on our Galloways and, and, and keen to do that because it was getting increasingly difficult to source Dunstock bulls and difficult to sell them if you had a good one because there's so few people, you know, very little demand for them. There's sure. only one or two two breeders really have done ones. So. Uh,
0: and you'll had your share of successes there. And uh, what numbers are you up to uh, there at another clip just now, uh, Peter?
1: When I first came here, there were about twenty-five to thirty cows. It's just a small place, only 150 acres. But we're now only a 15 cows. Uh, yeah, we've we've had a few successes over the years. Uh.
0: Another name, uh, Jim Ross, would be a hard man to beat, uh, wouldn't he, in the show ring? Anyway, the the Marianne female line, I think, was one of his strong ones, and I think that's probably a line that's still going today, probably up in the double figures, I guess, right now.
1: Yeah, I mean I don't know how many Marians have been. I mean Jim Ross sadly got his head killed out in foot and mouth but he was able to buy some of his own beating back after foot and mouth. And, and yeah, very successful. I mean if you're if you're at show, if you're in front of Jim Ross you know you're you're pretty much at the top and kind of then, you know, he's yeah, it's a great lot of success. Very another top top
0: and I've read some of that he's won the Great Yorkshire Show 22 times, which is incredible. And uh, there's been some parties in that Galloway Bar, Peter, in the Great Yorkshire Show, and I know your son Andrew uh, judged there this year. It's a, it's a stronghold of the breed, isn't it?
1: Well, oh, very much so. It's a stronghold of the breed, and, and Jim's done very well. It's a, it's a nice show to go to the Yorkshire Show, but really, honestly, in my opinion, for the, for the Galloway Breed, the Highland Show is the one to win, really. Okay. But, but the Yorkshire would be second to that, I dare say. Yeah,
0: but to win it 22 times, uh, certainly some feat. And Jim Ross sold uh, Windsor of Roomsbyrk for 12500 which which uh, again would be a record at the time, I guess?
1: No, it wasn't a record, because um, Pasco Norsen would still hold the record at 13500 in the early 60s. Um, so, no, but Windsor of was, was sold to Germany, and he would be out of... Um, a, a Dunavar Neris cow that, that Jim bought after he was killed out from the mouth from the Harkins at Dunavar. She was a good cow, very successful show cow. Yeah.
0: I'm just going back to uh, the, the mid-80s, the breed got a little bit of criticism from getting too small, and... Uh... But that's when some of those early exports to Canada came into play because uh, the genetics were out there and of course some of them came back and one of those was a bull called Globe Magnum who would be one of the first imported bulls I think in 1984 and I think he went on to, to win the Highland and, and, and bred a lot of good cattle I think uh, Peter.
1: Yeah absolutely right. Yeah, Willie Allen imported Globe Magnum about that time and, and he, he did win the Highland yeah. there, were, there were a lot of um, bulls imported from Canada and over that Ten fifteen year period. Um, yes, probably the bead was too small. It was too small for what was wanted at the time. Anyway, there's no doubt about that. And, and getting the Canadian genetics greatly increased the size and actually improved others and things like that as well. Because there were you know small tight others, nice less problems with big swing bags and that kind of thing. But now there were a lot of bulls, Globe Titan, to Major Penium Diamond B, Monarch, and. Boonavar, they were some of the earliest ones. Glen Kiln brought in a lot of bulls. Uh, we brought in a, a Dunn bull as well. and, and um, John Christopher of Loch brought in a couple of bulls. John Maxwell at um, Castle at Lock Lomond, he brought in a couple of Dunn bulls.
0: Would the Canadians keep the character in, in the Galloways that uh, you'd been used to over here, or had they bred a bit of that out of them by then?
1: I dare say a bit of that had been bred out of them. I mean, that was the sort of criticism from the people who were Possibly, there was a sort of anti-Canadian reading faction and that was the criticism that they didn't have maybe as good a head. It was a fair comment, but it's something, in my opinion, needed to be done to increase the size. And at the end of the day, they all went back to Scottish Soviets anyway. Sure, it's Some of the critics might have, might have thought, but part of the reason that the Canadian Catholic were bigger was because, because I think, I'd be told anyway, that at the time they were importing them, in the 50s, 60s. They couldn't afford the small, fancy-headed ones. It was a bigger plane ones that they could afford.
0: Oh, right. And
1: uh, hence, they were, were, were beating bigger plane ones. So, so I believe, anyway. <laughs>
0: that brings me neatly round to Chris, the, the way that they boomed again when the Germans arrived in their droves in the in the late 80s and uh, boosted the averages. And Chris Mahler would be involved in a lot of that, I think. But uh, one breeder, Jochen Willem, took 49 lots from uh, one Castle Douglas sale, and uh, over 400 uh, cattle went out of the country that spring. And then he took another 54 the following year, and it was a gold rush, wasn't it? Surely everybody got getting in on the act, and uh, it certainly took a lot of the bulling heifers from the country uh, um, <laughs> across the water there. And what, what sparked that sudden interest? Have you any idea? I,
1: I don't really know what sparked I think a lot of them originally were used for. Conservation grazing purposes, and I think it just snowballed. Once it started, it, it did snowball, and it was an absolute Klondike, if you like, at the time. And there was criticism of of, of, of selling your seed corn, if you like, but I don't think any, you know, no sensible breeder would have been selling his, his stock heifers when you could get good money for the second string, if you like. But no, it was it was certainly it was a, it was a very lucrative trade at the time. yeah
0: and of course it was slightly predate the them the the uh embryo transfer nowadays if they came over here we'd just flush all the best cows and send the, sell the embryos well the actual c- the cattle went over there live didn't they in in, in boatloads and boatloads
1: oh yes absolutely yeah I mean, you know there were it was uh, the demand was incredible really i mean you know, it was just and, and, uh, and there was no such thing as embryos at like embryo transfer at that time so but maybe it would be in this infancy, but it would we weren't involved in it as a breed way
0: and we had an uh, Angus breeder on the po- earlier podcast who admitted he went into Angus because he couldn't afford to buy Galloway's because they were too expensive so uh, <laughs> it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good to... <laughs> <interesting. laughs> yeah. and uh, sadly the uh, BSE of course put a stop to that export trade And uh, but not before Herr Horst had uh, paid 22000 for trademark of Reddings which of course was a, a new record that would stand for a long time and might still be the record is it Peter?
1: So a record, yeah, that was in 1989. I can remember it very well. I mean, it was a, an incredible price at the time. And, you know, I can remember George Wilson and the Reddings. I can remember him going down the street in Castle Douglas and, and buying a case of champagne and, and he brought up glasses and everything. And it wasn't paper cups or anything, it was actual sort of glasses. that I remember. Everybody drinking champagne. It was a, a,
0: a major celebration. Yeah. Good, good for him. Good. And why not? I suppose based on this, by the early nineties, good genetics would be hard to find in, in the UK. Um, uh, Peter, you would, that obviously, you can't just go to Canada to buy everything, but it would be quite hard to find to find the good cattle. Or people wouldn't be selling the good cattle if they've already got rid of that many.
1: Yeah, I think there was still a lot of good cattle here, but gene pools. I think at everybody, they're always getting tighter, and and that. Going to Canada was another way of, of you widening know, the Jeep's genetic pool, really. Although, as I say, if you go back far enough, they will go back to the same. But, I mean, yes, it was, It was as well as getting in traits like size, etc., you were getting in new bloodlines as well. This was a, a great advantage.
0: Sure. Uh, I had some dealings with George Somerville at Glen Kiln Farms, and I think you mentioned earlier on, and they were keen on the fat stock side of it. Uh, they went on to be a fairly influential uh, outfit, didn't they?
1: Oh, hugely influential. I mean, Glen Kiln imported a lot of Canadian bulls. I don't know how many. Mostly Diamond B ones, you know, bred by Robert Ballantyne in Saskatchewan. And yes, they're very influential. I mean, my father and myself shared a a Glen Kiln bull, Glen Kiln copyright, and he did a lot of good to to both of our herds. So it was a big increase in size. Yes, and Glen Kiln Dynamite, of course, was the father of um, Black Grey Kodiak, who was one then to read the Highland Show in 2009, amongst other things. Okay. And Glen Kiln Dynamite himself was a inf- very influential bull.
0: Certainly they had a, plenty of good years and they'll be still in a lot of good pedigrees uh, today, I, I guess. And I bought a few uh, pure and, and crossbred steers from Andrew Wharf in, in Carlisle. They run a lot of Galloways. I say commercially, I know we corrected me just now, but they run a lot of Galloways as, you know, as commercial cows, <laughs> didn't they? And, uh, great calves out of there. I took one to Smithfield and it kicked me and broke my nose. So uh, if you see next time, Andrew, you see me, that's, that's where it came from.
1: <laughs> That, that 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 must have been whatever other blood was in that made it kick. It wouldn't be Galway blood. It must have been <laughs> somewhere else in it. <laughs> um, yes, Andrew walked still so very much the fore in um, Cumbria, and there was a lot of good. A uh, lot of good was, it was always very keen on the fat stock side of it as well. Yeah, certainly.
0: And. Uh... One observation that sort of came to me quite recently is a lot of Galloway breeds are synonymous with black is with Scottish black sheep and names like uh, Cool and Gas. And uh, do these breeds complement each other? I suppose they like living in the same climate, do they?
1: Oh, absolutely they do. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Galloway cattle out in Greece and the Hill and, and improve the grazing for the sheep. Now, I'm sure, I mean, my father wouldn't mind me that, that he thought for himself a, a sheep farmer primarily and, and he had Galloway cattle. <laughs> so, I mean, no, no, the, the gallow cattle certainly improved the ground for the sheep
0: and we mentioned sadly earlier on 2001 the foot and mouse which should have a massive role to play in the breeds history took out some great genetics in that southwest west of Scotland uh, including of course the, the Grange herd and a few more and uh, it desiccated a lot and uh, it would be very hard to get a lot of these breeds to get the, find their way back up and some of them of course uh, 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 the biggest included didn't
1: yeah I mean it, it was a, a devastating time for the whole, whole industry and you know, particularly this area as you know was badly hit and you know Grains, Rome's Beer, Glen Kiln, I think Glen Kiln had a, a sort of nucleus head that that weren't at home so it didn't get killed out but I mean Glen Kiln and, and, and the Grains haven't really continued gallows for, 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 probably for other reasons but Rome's Beer certainly has come back a, to be a force to be reckoned with in, you know, in all respects buying back some of his own bloodlines and
0: some new bloodlines, so... Yeah, I mean, we, we got over it as a breed, to put it that way. And we mentioned uh, Black Craig Fay earlier on, is sold to 12500 Catherine McGregor, a new breeder coming in, very smart girl Catherine, and uh, I think we'll see that beast again, don't you, in, in a show world, in a show team somewhere, possibly? I
1: would imagine so, and if not, so I think she's been flushed, so I mean, if we don't see her, we we'll certainly see her progeny, I would imagine, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: I'm sure you saw her in the flesh. She looked a tremendous beast on the photographs that I saw.
1: An outstanding effort, yeah. Great to see it making it, a good, a, a good a price. I mean, that, that those are the sort of things that that raise the profile of the breed mm-hmm. within within other breeds, if you like. Your other top breeders and other breeds say, oh, look at that, 12,500, and, and the date notice.
0: So it certainly brings a bit of interest in. And another thing that brought a bit of interest in would be the World Convention that. Uh, I think you had in 2016, that would bring a lot of visitors from overseas. And did that help uh, lift the export trade back up again a little bit, Peter?
1: Yes, uh, it probably did. I mean, the the World Congress that we had here in 2016 was really masterminded by Scott McKinnon at Castle, who was chairman of the Society at the time, put a, a lot of work into it. But, I mean, it's something that, it's been knocked on the head by coronavirus, but it's something we have every four years of World Congress, obviously in different countries of the world. I mean, it should have been in in Denver last year, but obviously it didn't take place, so I don't know what's going to happen in the future. It tends to join up with the et etc. to make it, you know, it's a big event. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Just <laughs> not just a few days on the Skype then, Peter, no. Yeah, well, there's that side of it too, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah. Of course. And the breeders now are spread into England as well. Young lads like Jason Wareham. I still think of Jason Wareham as a young lad, but uh, he's, go- he's grown on a bit now. But yeah. uh, able fellas down there and, and and quite a few spread around in England now, aren't they, the breeders?
1: Yes, yeah, quite a few. I mean, there have been for, for some time, but it's nice to see people like Jason Wareham who's... Yeah, you know, know a name in, in the the prime stock showing world, and people, are, you know, it's all it all helps, and it's yeah, it's it's good to see, definitely. I mean, we've we've breeders, you know, nationwide, and have had for a long time, but when you get somebody who's already well known in the, the prime stock world, working with our it, it helps raise the profile of the breed definitely.
0: Another thing, of course, that's helped raise the profile is that Aldi are now marketing uh, Galloway beef. That's got to be good for the breeders. How's that working? Is there a premium paid to, for animals off the registered yeah, I mean, Galloway side? So
1: yeah, it's not a, a regular weekly thing as such. It was a a promotion pre-Christmas last year. They did it, and they took 150 carcasses, which is a significant number, obviously, mm-hmm. and paid 30 pence per kilo premium on the, the price that they were offering that. That weekend, they're going to be doing the same this Christmas, and I think they're taking 170 cattle this Christmas, and I think there's a hope that they'll be doing something at Easter as well.
0: Nice if they could continue that on, but I guess that they would run out of supply uh, eventually if they tried to do too much of it.
1: Well, I dare say they would, but I mean, it's a nice position to be in if if the um, demand is outstripping supply. It's better that than the other way around. I think there's there's various other schemes sort of in the infancy, which I don't know all that much about as yet. But there's one with a with an internet
0: sales thing.
1: There's there's talks going on at the moment. I don't know how much it is um, public knowledge yet, as you say. But I mean that will take in. I mean, at the moment, the Aldi one is exclusive to Scott the Scottish Department of Aldi, which is a great shame. But I think this other one is going to take in. England as well, which, which would, be, would be good. We've been outside the Great Britain and Ireland, so it's, we don't want to be exclusive to Scotland, obviously. But, sure, again, sure. We're addressing that at the moment.
0: And uh, I mentioned briefly your son, Andrew, who is his own cars fired herd, and a, a damn good flock of uh, Ryland sheep, of which my wife and I have been a customer, and Andrew's an auctioneer, is that right? He's uh,
1: uh, with um, Craig Wilson that Aaron didn't do it. Andrew being based mainly at Newton Stewart, although he goes to Ayr on, on virtually every sale day, but he actually sells his sheep at Newton Stewart, so, which he seems to enjoy very much. and yeah, he, he, he loves his his island sheep, and has his own gallery cow, which is a cast-fired prefect, as you say.
0: Uh-huh. And I believe you guys have an entry in the next week's uh, Live Scott event there. Uh, um, uh, good luck with that one, uh, Peter. Thank
1: you. Yeah, we're, we're on the gallery bullet for Live Scott. We're also there's... New classes this year for Galloway calves as well, which has been very well supported. Um, I think there's an entry of over 20 or something, I believe, you know, between heifer calves and bull calves. Um, same as what the Limousines and the Angus and the other breeds have. But I have to thank uh, uh, Dennis Gall, who's, who's a free large stockman now, but was a uh, served as. Well, he said with the Genesis at, at, at the Shield His father was stockman for the Genesis at the Shiel and then a clue. Mm-hmm. And then Dennis was at Castle Milk for many years. the top, top mad. And then he was at various <laughs> other Angus bits and limousine bits. And he did a lot of the canvassing for this calf show. So we have to thank him for getting one of these entries.
0: You're right, a great and well-known man that, uh, that Dennis is. And I believe the calf show is on the Friday night before the, the main show, isn't it? So that'll add another dimension to the yes, to yes, the I think so, yeah. Anything else we've forgotten to mention, Peter?
1: One thing I would mention that in, in recent years the sort of pinnacle of the Galloway's show success would be in 2009 when um, Black Craig Kodiak shown by William McLean was um, interbreed champion and the Galloway's set the boards that year they, they won the individual, they won the pairs, they won the native interbreed which was three animals and they won the group of four interbreed, and it's, that's never been done by any other breed any other time, so well, you know, that would be the sort of highlight of the, the showing. It was the first year at the Highland Show had a pair interbreed pairs competition, there. So, but it hasn't been done since either. So.
0: Well, it's it's Spectacular achievement indeed. And uh, Peter, yeah. with with a few new breeders getting into the breed now and the resurgence of the demand for native beef, the uh, the future of the Galloway breed looks uh, looks pretty certain, doesn't it?
1: I would say so. I would say that the the, the time is right to use perhaps a cliche, because I mean, you know, nowadays with carbon footprint etc cetera, etc. Cetera, I mean, surely extensively grazed cattle are, are better in that respect, and the the economics of them, the fact that you don't need expensive housing and they they will do well and less feeding than some other breeds. I'm not saying you shouldn't feed them at all. I mean, every animal responds to a bit of feeding. But, um, no, I think the time's right for the, for the future of the Galloway, yes. As yeah, you, much so.
0: And as you said, because they make a good, uh, cross with other breeds, they make a good cow as well. Peter, I've had a, enough of your time there. I um, yeah. really appreciate you uh, giving us a chat there from uh, from across there in Galloway. And I might just catch up with you at Live Scott and see if we can, uh, I can buy you a dram, if that's if that's OK. Thanks again well, that'd for your... that would your...
1: be great, Andy. be great for you to receive. Thanks, okay, yeah.
0: okay. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another podcast from Top Lines and Tales. And I hope you've enjoyed, as I have, this journey through the history of these great native breeds in the UK. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, of course, suppliers and manufacturers of high quality nutrition and and nutritional advice. This episode, as always, will be backed up by photographs on our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page. Please tune in and have a look, and and by all means contribute photographs of your own. And we'll see you all soon on the next episode of Top Lines and Tales.